today, maybe one of the best uh, stories out there for a man who chose to change his life and it dramatically helped him out. He went from, I think, spending 15 years in jail and expelling to selling his bread company, which I've never had. I'm going to have it today live. Dave's Killer Bread for $275 million cash. And uh, he hires ex-felons, ex-men who did time. I think a third of their employees are ex-felons. With that being said, my guest today is Dave Dahl. Dave, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Yeah, my pleasure. So if, if first of all, I read this story. I watch all your videos. You know how open you are about things you've done. It's not like you're even hiding it. You just kind of openly share, here's what I did, here's what I did there, this is who I was. So if you don't mind taking a minute here and sharing with the audience you know, your your background story or how you went from where you were at to starting the company, I think that'd be great for starters. I had a pretty screwed up childhood, the kind of childhood that nobody, you know, I can't even explain to someone and have them understand. Uh, but it is what it is. And, you know, I was a baker. My dad was a baker. Um, that's what we did when we, were, when we were kids growing up. We didn't have money, but we managed to get by with, uh, you know, producing bread. You know, I didn't want to do that. I had a lot of depression when I was young and I turned to drugs and eventually crime. Uh, it was really the only thing I knew how to do besides bread. And I didn't really know how to do that either, uh, the, the uh, crime part. So I had to learn the hard way. And that's why I went to prison four times. I was not very good at it. So I, I did 15 years, uh, all drug related in the sense that everything was in order to get drugs. And uh, so four trips to prison, my uh, fourth time down, I had an epiphany. Uh, I, I got some help for my medication. I got some medication from my, for my uh, um, depression and it actually worked for me. And then I, I uh, went to school for drafting, computer-aided drafting, which is a trade that was exciting to me. I had a lot of fun with it, and I realized I was capable of doing more than I thought. So uh, I excelled at that and eventually got out of prison and went to work making bread and, you know, worked with my family and creating my own products. So... Didn't expect the kind of success that I had, but I, um, I mean, nobody could, right, in bread, but I, I had a lot of fun just trying to make something happen. I used the same principles that I learned in drafting, the same mental principles. I was able to design six varieties of bread, which I took to the farmer's market the same year that I got out of prison. So, and, and how was it received when you took it to the farmer's market? It was like a dream, you know, um, you, you could never imagine, you know, I, I know I went there. I remember people coming up and trying it, walking away and then coming back with six more people, you know, it was that kind of thing. And, uh, it got so, so busy. We were the most popular thing at the market, really the Portland farmer's market. And, uh, so, Word of mouth immediately began, you know, became our our marketing tool. The more you got the bread in somebody's mouth, the more the more you sold. 
it, it, when did the company get started? Well, was it in 2013 that it got started, or when, when did it when did it get started? No. Uh, started in 2005. Now, my dad started the, the company in 1955, but when I got out of prison, it was 2005, and that's when Days Killer Bread started. Got it. So 2005 is when that got started. So, and and Dave, your your background in business. You know, I know you and your brother were running together as well. Were you more on the marketing side? Were you on the selling side? Were you on the product development side? What was your strength to go from not having any background to building a company where somebody cuts you a check for two seventy five? That's a good question. Uh, fortunately, you know, I had an infrastructure in a sense to start with. I got out, and there was already uh, a way to make a product, uh, to produce a product at a small. We weren't able to produce a lot of product, but we were able to to keep keep up with demand for a little while. And uh, so the the thing was, it, it gave me a chance. I got out of work, got out of prison, went to work for twelve bucks an hour. The same time, I was moonlighting as a product developer. So I created these products, like I said, using the same principles I learned in drafting. I was never so much the guy that did finances or, um, you know, the bean counting and all that kind of stuff. But the money was never really that important to me. I just wanted to make a living. And so I, I just was, I got excited about the development of the product and then the, the marketing of the product. Essentially, I was a product developer and a marketer, but the marketer, the marketing aspect was, it, it took over. It took over everything. Uh, Dave, in 05, how big was the business? If you were to say like your dad's, uh, was it one shop? Was it one store? How, how big was the business in 05? My dad's business, and which was taken over by my brother, Glenn, uh, at the time that I came out of prison, I think there was around 30 employees. And so it was a business, it was a wholesale bakery that was basically mostly producing private label products in order to keep going. They were making, I think, the, the most, uh, the biggest account and the, the, the best account at that time was Trader Joe's. So we were a producer of products for other people. And we also made, had a, uh, a brand called Nature Bake that my brother had been keeping alive for a few years. Got it. And And by the time you guys ended up selling it, can you give us some stats like hey this is how many breads we sold a day this is how many we made every day this is how many employees we had to go from all five yeah. to the point when you guys sold it okay uh well we were producing the nature bake and the, the private label products at the same time that i was beginning this uh days killer bread project it's a, at the time it was just a project it was like more more bread for the company didn't realize that it would eventually take over. So at that time, it was like, you know, we made a couple hundred loaves a week to take to the farmer's market. And we were selling out really well. We were, we were everything was a, was an experiment, everything, you know, marketing exper experiment, uh, you know, production experiment, or, you know, testing different things in the product, which was my, my main focus was making sure the bread was perfect. 
So, you know, it was like 200 loaves in 2000, early 2000, or like August of 2005. Uh, by the next year, by early in the next year, we were like 6,000 a week. And then the year after that, I mean, I, I, I couldn't even give you the numbers. It was, it, it multiplied by, you know, double digits as far as, uh, <laughs> if, if you had like, if you sold 20,000 one year, then the next year it was a hundred thousand and the next year it was 500,000 and you know, or that kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was growing at an incredible rate and kind of rate where it's really hard to keep up with. And the challenges were, were more about like, how are we going to finance this next growth spurt? You know, we got to get, we got to get people that are going to back us up because we don't have that money. You know, you can't, that's one of the biggest challenges you have as a growing businessman and with, who makes stuff, makes stuff, produces stuff from, you know, goods rather than just say software or something that, uh, you, you sell an idea is one thing, but actually having to produce it, uh, coming up with the ingredients, you know, all the logistics of that as we were growing. Thankfully, my brother and my nephew, who are my partners, were more into the logistical side of getting the ingredients and uh, dealing with all the challenges that we had of producing the product. How many is it selling right now? Do you have any idea? Because you're saying from 6,000, 20, 500K. Do you have any idea how many it's selling yeah. right now a week? Uh, it's, it's impossible to say because I'm not involved anymore. But I can say that when I left, we were in probably seven states, western states, and a few little outposts away from there. Um, we were selling, we were producing uh, about a half million loaves a week, a little bit more at that time. And uh, that was tough, you know, just keeping up. So we had other people, we had uh, Safeway bakeries, and such making our product, trying to trying to make our product. It was it was hard to get their culture to keep up with ours uh, in the way that we looked at making the bread. That's one of the, another one of the challenges that you have. So we were what were we at? Uh, like I said, half million loaves a week, probably more than that when I left. I, it's got to be more like ten million now. You know, more than that even. I don't know because you think. The way I see it growing, it's now made in entirely, it's made in Canada, it's made in several places in the U.S., it's made in Mexico, it's all over the place. That's, a, that's amazing to see. Now, uh, for you, I got, I got a few different questions for you. One, I have you and your relationship with your father, because I got two boys, I got a girl, and I just had a newborn two or three weeks ago, so I got four kids. I want to know where that conflict was with your pops. Then the business side, then how do you manage ex-cons who don't like to follow the rules? Like, there's got to be a way of leading them. There's got to be some interesting way of leading them. But let's first go to a father-son relationship. It, it, Dave, was it more a you think? Was it more a he think? Was it more an environment thing? Or was it more a combination of everything that there was a division, like, you know, a bit of a rift between you and your pops? I didn't like the way my, my father was. I... I didn't like the way I was. I, I didn't grow up with much self-esteem and I don't think my dad had a lot of self-esteem. 
I think the, the, the things, the, the same things that make you laugh can make you cry in the sense that my dad was a hardworking, you know, creative uh, guy. His focus was on his business. And that rubbed off on me, obviously. Uh, but at the time, I just looked at him as this, this really rough character without a whole lot of grace, social graces or anything. He wasn't teaching me any of the things I wanted to learn. And eventually I learned some of the things anyway. And he was very stern and kind of just a hard guy to get along with. And that was kind of the way I saw it growing up. And I just felt like crap. You know, that was the conflict. I, it wasn't until way later that I began to realize, it was after he was he had passed, that I realized he was actually a very uh, interesting and uh, interesting guy who deserved a lot of credit, especially when you consider Dave's killer bread would have never have happened without him. That's, that's interesting you've been able to give that uh, credit to him. Did your, did your brother also have conflicts with him as well, or was it more you than him? I think my brother had even more conflicts because my brother was eight years older than me and he grew up, he was my boss when I was, you know, growing up. My brother was far different from my dad. He wasn't nearly the hard guy, the mean guy, whatever. And they would fight, you know, a lot, bump heads, because they just had different ways of trying to get the work done and trying to account for things, trying to do accounting, bookkeeping. Um, my dad just had a very rough way about it. My brother wanted to streamline the process and make it work better. Got it. And did your parents stay married? Were they together? My, my parents stayed married uh, until my dad died in 1998. Wow. So props to your mom to, to, to be in that environment and, you know, uh, was she yeah. the loving one? Was she somebody that was more the one that gave you love, gave your brother love? Yeah, she was a loving person, a kind, very kind person, religious person. Um, and it, she she had all of her own um, struggles with, you know, uh, self-esteem and all that. And we all did. But she was very kind about it. She just had a different approach about how she dealt with people. She was very uh, humble. And I think I learned humility from her eventually. Well, that's that's the, the, the great part about how the man upstairs created a mom and a dad for us to kind of get a little bit of balance from both sides. Was your dad ever in the military or no? Was, did he have a military background? Yeah. My dad was in, the, uh, in World War II uh from right about the time that it started to the time that and he was at four years from 41 to 45 as a navy he he was a cook on a ship my dad always wanted to be a baker so i think that's what he was was a baker on the ship yeah you know they, they say a lot of the uh, uh folks who come from the great depression era their level of understanding of the next generation is so much harder for them because they had it so hard. It's like, do you really, and they're so afraid of losing everything because you know how it was in the thirties. So it, it's tough for us to embrace them and understand them sometimes. And it's tough for them to communicate uh, with us. My dad yeah. is one of the toughest guys, man. Like nothing was ever at his standard, but you know, 79 years old today, he still lives with me, but uh, he was able to see the changes taking place 
And I'm sure if he was watching right now, watching over you guys, he's probably blown away by what you and your brother have been able to build as a company. And probably even more than that, how was it for you and your brother working together? Did you guys get along? Did you have conflicts or was it just easy to work together? You know, it was, it was uh, almost, either one of us were murderers, right? But if we were, somebody would probably be dead by now. And then there was my, my nephew as well. So <laughs> I always felt like it was my brother and my nephew against me. So, uh, but I, I knew I had something. I knew, I believed in what I was doing. And so a lot of times knowing what I wanted and going to get it, sometimes uh, they didn't agree. And so we had to get through that. It was, and it was tough. Got it. I mean, you know, to think about this, you know, uh, you're saying 10 a week. If they're saying 10 million a week, that's you on it, right? I mean, that's literally you on the on the back, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a good story about the, the creation of that logo. I'll try to just real, real quick. I, I didn't have any money, remember? You know, I mean, we didn't have a budget for creating Dave's Killer Bread. It was kind of like, you're going to have to make this, you know, on a shoestring. So I found an artist. I had an idea, you know, from talking to a copyright attorney. I got this idea of making a logo. And so I drew up real quick, I drew a logo idea of this guy it was way too complicated for a logo but it was this guy who represented me holding his guitar standing in front standing in front of this wall and on this brick wall was big letters dave's bread and then somebody comes along with a spray can a red spray paint can and and you know tags killer on on that yeah, that didn't, that didn't, you can't tell that by looking at the logo, but that was my idea. And then I got a guy, I paid him, uh, I didn't have much money. I, I don't remember what I ended up paying. It was like two or three hundred bucks, I believe. And he tried, he kept, he kept trying to, he was a cartoonist and he kept trying to, uh, make me look almost like me. You know, I'm like, no, dude, you gotta, you gotta make me look better. You know, <laughs> <laughs> better, better, better. And I, I finally, it, you know, the, the last thing I got to do was to make my arms ridiculously big. You yeah. Know, I said, look, I'm, I'm paying you the big bucks to make my arms big. <laughs> By the way, is this the original, original logo? Yeah, that's never really changed. No. Wow. Oh. And I know you play guitar. So now, for some people that don't know, when you do 15 years in prison and you name your bread Dave's Killer Bread, I mean, you know, immediately people go to a different place when they see Dave's killer bread. Yeah. Can you please clarify yeah. that with the killer uh, adjective? Yeah, there's sometimes people, uh, they assume, uh, some certain people's brains work that way, right? Where it's immediately like they go with, they go straight to, oh, prison killer. Okay, he's a killer from prison, right? No. And so I never even thought of that. I just was always wanted to make a loaf of bread called Killer Bread. And it, it eventually, I just made this loaf of bread called Killer Bread. And next thing you know, all my bread's being called Dave's Killer Bread. So yeah. uh, that's it. it just took off. So it says five grams of protein, five grams of fiber, 260 milligrams of omega-3, 22 grams of whole grain. I've never had this before, okay? But I'm going to try it right now. And 
My employees yeah. swear by this. It's in the fridge every day. They eat this. Now, what you should wow. be noticing right now is really good mouthfeel and really good flavor. Oh, my gosh. Now, that's, that's 21 whole grains that you're eating right now, 21 whole grains and seeds. My favorite is good seed. I even have it on the back of my, you know, tattoo of it on my back. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> good seed, you know, yeah. I always named my breads. I named my breads before I created them, yeah. you know. Uh, so I was like, you know, good seed was about my transformation from being a bad seed to a good seed. And so I named, I created a bread named Good Seed around the name. I love that. By the way, just so everybody knows, you're not paying me to do this. There is no sponsorship here. He does, you don't even own the company anymore. So why would you pay me to do this? I'm just, it doesn't even benefit him by me saying this bread is good. Whether I say the bread sucks or it's great, he doesn't make a penny more, a penny less. I think. Yeah, you can tell the truth. Yeah. But no, you this thing is delicious. So, so we talked about pops. We talked about the business side. Um, I still can't. I mean, even my camera guys right now, Oscar's uh, amazed by the taste of it. Uh, managing former felons, right? Folks who did time. You got a third of your employees at the time when you guys sold the company out of your 300 employees, near, nearly 100 had done time before. One, how did you find them? Did they find you or you found them? And two, how did you hold them accountable? Well, that's a, that's a big one right there. Uh, the thing was, we started, you know, remember, we're, we're growing really fast. So you're hiring really fast, which is, you know, can be challenging trying to get the right people. And myself, uh, the thing that I understood better than a lot of people would understand is that ex-felons can be great assets. You know, anybody who's given a chance when they've when they've hit a bottom, say, um, can, can they can be grateful and hardworking employees. And so that was something we instinctively sort of knew because of my own uh, experience. The thing was, we, we were willing to give those guys and ladies chances that a lot of people wouldn't give them. And, and so they were grateful to that. But we also made a lot of mistakes in the beginning and hired the wrong people. It's really about getting the right people and, of course, like you say, treating them right and holding them accountable to the best of your ability. We had a, a strong vision for the product that we wanted to make. And by that time, we also had my story, you know. So people actually searched, ex-felons would actually search out our company to come work for us. So, but, but we held people to a certain standard that I would say that I sort of emulated or that I uh, was the progenitor of. I, it's like, okay, you gotta, I'm expecting you to follow in my footsteps. And so it, it, once they get out of that line, they tend to go a different direction and they don't make it. It's like, some, a little bit of humility, which is for an ex-felon is not an easy thing because most, you go to prison most of you, most of your life, you, uh, you know, and you do crime, you kind of have, I tend to have a bad attitude. And these guys, these were mostly people who were trying to turn over a new leaf. So we were just, we just had to hold them to that standard.
And, and were you mainly looking for a person that maybe wants a major change and they have a positive attitude because you could build on the attitude? Because you said even if you're hiring former inmates, you could still hire the wrong former inmates, right? Former. So, so how did especially, you differentiate? Especially when you're hiring fast. That's right. Especially so when you're you hiring really quickly. Yeah. How do you differentiate between the two? Uh, well, for me, okay, that's a good question. Like, like, for me, it was like, like I wonder, like your interview process, did you ask me three questions or two questions that was gave you an idea to say, this is a person we ought to give an opportunity to? Absolutely. Uh, that was my approach. It was not easy to always get that approach used when interviewing folks because they weren't, uh, I wasn't always the one doing the interviewing in those early days. Uh, but my intention for those was always like, okay, what have you been doing the last few years? You've been in prison, right? Okay. You, you want to just say, if somebody just goes, well, yeah, I've been in prison for the last few years. So, you know, didn't. well, there's an opportunity wherever you're at to work on yourself. So what have you been doing during that time? to help yourself and to maybe help your family, you know, just to be a better person. And that, just that question alone, that question and, and follow-up questions on that can get people, uh, you can find out what a person's about. How, how did, you how may did not you, be right every time. Yeah, that's true. You're not going to be right every time. Yeah, that is true. How, how did you work on yourself? I know there's a part of it where, in many interviews, you talk about the fact that the, you know, uh, uh, proper medication helped and, you know, proper sitting down with the doctor helped, but, but it's gotta be even more than that. Like what else was it for you that you said, did you read books? Did you have affirmations? Did you have an inspiration from a movie, from an article, from a star, from somebody we know, where did you grab your source of inspiration from? I was always searching, even in the first three times I did my, I went to prison. The fourth time I, I really thought, well, my life is over. I was like, it's over. There's nothing I'm going to be able to do to get out. You know, this, this is the person that I've, I have chosen to be. And now I'm a, I'm a wreck. And, you know, and so I had this really negative attitude, but I also was trying because I didn't have any choice, but to try to figure something out. But every night was, was a struggle for me and every day to get up and even go to chow or go, go out to the yard and do whatever I was doing. Uh, I didn't want to face the day, you know, that's how bad I felt. And so it, it, I had to put on an air of, of strength, even though I felt like inside, I felt like a, a massive jelly, you know, I felt terrible. And so, um, that was a terrible thing to not really be able to be myself because I, I didn't like myself. So what happened was in 2001, I let down my guard, if you will. I dropped a piece of paper and we call it a kite, but it's just a piece of, a, a piece of paper where you ask for whatever, you know, from, from the, uh, from the authorities. And I had decided after a few years in prison that time that I needed some help and that I would ask for help. And that was a big deal for me. Nobody wants to ask for help in prison. You know, they want to be tough. They want to be cool. They want to be hard. But it was the best thing that I ever did. I, I asked for help. I put the kite in. I got meds. 
which I didn't think would help me, but they really made a big difference to me because I was all of a sudden able to focus because I, I wasn't thinking depressed, negative thoughts all the time. And, you know, it, this all went the same time. I, I was studying things like Buddhist, Buddhist principles, you know, other, like you say, affirmations. I, I was reading books to try to help me be a better person, but it never worked until I took that medication and, and I asked for help. And then I went to school for drafting about within the next few months, I started going to school. And uh, the combination of all those things made me realize I wasn't the guy that I had always thought it was. I didn't have to be that guy. And so that was a pretty amazing moment in my life. And, and from that point on, no matter how many times I still screwed up, I always knew I was going to be okay. You always knew and I knew I could work hard, work hard and make something happen. Very, very uh, uh, great story to hear. Now, uh, let me ask you for yourself, is it a challenge till today? Because I do know, I think in 2014, something happened with an Escalade driving into the car. Is it a challenge that you struggle yeah. with till today? Is it still constant working on it? Yeah, you got to work on, for me, it's the substance abuse. Just the, you know, I've always, you're always that far away from, you know, getting gobbled up by the monster which is to me it could be depression or if that happened again that you know any kind of thing where that took me off course mentally would be bad uh but i don't feel that that is a problem anymore because of all the the time i've got of doing doing good good stuff uh but i did in two you know 2013 i had uh i had been, i had become very successful and I started kind of patting myself on the back a lot, even though I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I didn't believe that. I didn't want to think of myself as a rock star. I just wanted to be this guy, to continue to be this guy. But I had started drinking, you know, celebrating. I was going to Mexico. I discovered tequila, you know, and I started having a great time. And, uh, you know, for me, I don't really do anything a little bit. I do, I do it a lot. You can look at my, you can look at the mask yeah. behind me. That's like, that's like a, a, that's like a needle in the haystack of, of the stuff that I have. <laughs> but anyway. You're one uh, of the largest collectors in the world, apparently. I mean, it's, uh, you, you got oh, a collection of it. Yeah, I got to be one of, one of the most, prolific uh african art collectors that there is but anyway that's that's either cool or that's kind of insane one or the other i go to both <laughs> so uh <laughs> but i that's another thing i mean this this art was one of the things that brought me out of what happened in mm. 2013 with the escalade and the three cop cars uh and, and but the reason that that happened uh it's not a simple reason but uh was because of that getting away from who I was, you know, becoming, I always was afraid of becoming a parody of myself. You know, I used to speak, I'd go, I'd, I'd speak to hundreds of people a day, you know, get up and, and just tell my story. And, uh, I might have a drink before I go in there just because I wanted to relax, you know, a little bit. And then afterwards I go drink a bunch and I have a driver. You know, I didn't, I had my own driver and stuff, so I didn't need, to, I wasn't drinking and driving. So 
that became a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And it was always tequila. That was my thing. And after a couple of years of that, it, things it was, things started happening that weren't cool. Um, it wasn't any kind of crime or any kind of anything really bad. It was just like my behavior wasn't what it should have been. And then the incident happened in 2013 with the cops, which was actually a bipolar meltdown. Do you know? It took place after about a month of not drinking. But the drinking is what led to it, led up to this whole thing. I quit drinking, but then I started having all this resentment in my mind. Another terrible thing to have in your life is resentment, right? So uh, I was having some bad thoughts and I, I didn't get depressed, but instead I, be, I started discovering this other part of myself, this, this manic side. And I was going up this hill of mania and I didn't realize it. Uh, I just thought I was thinking really good, but I wasn't. So that led to the moment with the cops that was very unfortunate in some ways, but the way I look at it is everything that happens happens because you did that. You made it happen one way or the other. Yeah. It, it shouldn't have happened the way that it happened, but you know, I'm the one who creates my life. So now I'm still on uh, restrictions from that, but I had this, you know, the, the art was, uh, the African art was, I, I realized a way for me to forget about all that. And that's, it's been a good thing in that sense. Hey, Dave, I lost a friend of mine years ago. <clears throat> i never forget the day when it happened. Uh, it was in 05 when I got the phone call. I was on my way to an event at Diamond Bar, California. And it was a buddy of mine who had a hard time with the uh, drugs. He started off with weed and then it led to a lot of different things. And then eventually the hardest one he couldn't get off of was uh, Vicodin. It was 25 to 50 a day. And I would take him to the rehab center. And eventually at the very young age, he passed away. What, which, if, if, I mean, I don't know how much you, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, messed around with drugs and how much you tried for yourself. Which one of them was the one that was the toughest to get off of where, it got a hold of you. Was there any one that got you the worst? Well, it's different. It was different eras of my life. So uh, the the first drug that appealed to me and made me go, oh, wow, life is worth living. You know, because I tried all kinds of drugs. But it wasn't until I did methamphetamine and I put it in my arm uh, the very first time. And I, I just, my, it was, it was my first epiphany. You know, I told you about the epiphany that changed my life later. Well, this was like a, this was a drug induced epiphany. And I looked around and I started, I became a different person, you know, not a good person, not a good person, but uh, I was enjoying my life for the first time. And uh, so I was, I was doing the dope. So it was hard to get off of that in the It was a psychological thing. You know, I, I, I didn't want to live without it because without it, I wasn't happy. But drugs physically, physically, like Vicodin is horrible. If you got a, if you do a lot of Vicodin. I did get uh, hooked on Oxycontin at one point. And the physical withdrawal from that is something you do not want to live, you know, live with if you're doing a lot of it. Oxycontin. Yeah, I think it's similar to, I mean, 
bargaining could be the same thing, you know. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's uh, you know it's it's funny when he gets a hold of you. It's like you can't even recognize. I, I remember one time I'm at a restaurant with this guy, and he says, "I got to go to my car to get something." I'm like, "No, you're not. You don't need. You're not going to your car to get something." I follow him. I didn't trust what he was saying. I follow him to the car. He goes to his trunk. He opens it up. Opens up the thing. Picks up like six, seven to throw it in. I grabbed his hand. Grabbed the bottle. Walked off. He's crying, begging me to allow him to take six pills, begging me. Begging me, say, please let me, I say, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm begging you. I'm in so much pain. I've never seen any grown man in that kind of pain. I said, I got to take this guy to somewhere. And even after the 14 days of rehab, the guy that was selling the Vicodin was a former dentist who was selling it to a guy that a dentist was getting the Vicodin off to this kid who was a, anyways, it's a whole different story. But man, it's, it's great to see what you've done with yourself. By the way, since, since you have the experience, Dave, any any opinions you have because you know the prison reform conversation comes up all the time right so you have those who uh uh say hey you know why are you sending people to jail like i think you went to jail for stealing a 12 dollar and 99 cent cell phone accessory and i think you did a year for that is is that true or is that fake story i did two, i did two years for that one they turned it into a robbery it was really just a shoplifting but I resisted arrest on the way out, and uh, they, because of my record, see, that's a, that's a lesson in itself. I had already done time. I'd been in prison twice at that Got point, it. Got it. and uh, one of them was in Massachusetts for armed robbery. So I came back, and this happened, and because of my record, they charged me with robbery. They would have otherwise not done that, and then I couldn't. I even went to trial on it and did time over it. So, no, no, no. The, I guess where I was going with, I just asked you if it's true. And I think you said something very interesting at the time. You said, I really suck at crime. My heart's not in it. Yeah. But, but, but the yeah. point I was, but the question I was going to ask you was the following Do you agree with the consensus or when people say, why do you let people go into jail for petty crime? Because it's a training ground for doing the bigger crimes. When you went to jail, were you around other people that taught you? Was it a training type of a ground to teach someone to come out and do the bigger crime? Or no, you don't agree with that? For me, it was. Uh, I guess maybe some people hit a bottom when they first go to prison and they don't go back. They don't, they don't keep doing it. And that's great when that happens. For me, um, because of all my issues where the where dope was the only way you know methamphetamine was the only way i could feel good i had to keep doing it and try to figure out ways to continue this lifestyle and then and so for to me it was a training ground it was but what i was getting trained to do was something stupider the next time you know <laughs> that's that's the way i look at that some guys are just really good criminals and some guys like me i never really wanted to be a criminal i just didn't have much of a choice, I guess. Did, did, did you did you uh, uh, see the challenges with a lot of your either peers when you were in or when you started hiring folks that there was help that was needed through a doctor medication? Because, you know, some people, you, you'll have different opinions on that. Some will say it's just an excuse. Some will say, no, they need help. Like there's a debate that goes back and forth from your experiences from where you were at. Have you seen some that use an excuse or have you seen it where a lot of them do have something that they're struggling with from childhood? Maybe for you, it was your father, maybe for 
somebody else abused, you know, somebody died. Did, did you see some mental link to the, the treachery or the, the mistakes they made him when it come down to committing a crime? Was there a link between the two? Yeah. I think everything has, has a, you know, a cause and effect. So, uh, I think a lot of things can be scientific or not, they can be brought down to accountability. Like you were saying, if, um, in my case, learning to be self accountable was a huge part of my, of my growth. So when I look at say the homeless problem, uh, in Portland, for example, I, I'm like, okay, the reason this is happening is because it's too easy to be homeless. You make it, you make it easy. You make it, if, if life, if like I've been homeless before back in the day, right? On the streets of Detroit, Michigan, and they weren't, it wasn't good. It was winter time and I did not want to be homeless. I did everything I could because I was trying to survive out there. These guys, it's, they're like, okay, well, you've got a problem. You're homeless. So, you know, after a while, they just become, it becomes another, uh, part of the city, another place to live. It's all over the streets. Um, and I'm like, this is being enabled. So it's enablement of, uh, in this case, homelessness, homelessness, which is, it also enables drug addiction. Uh, you can say, well, I can give treatment. To that person you know and that's going to say well not really it on its own it's not going to do it because they can just go right back really easy and, and start that that cycle right all, all over again and they will so to me the first thing that has to be done with to stop crime and violence and you know drug addiction and, and homelessness is you got to have tough love and uh because i would have never changed if i had a, a life an easy life and could move forward so that i don't like excuses i don't i don't put up with excuses not for myself or anyone else what a way of explaining it and, and do you have any other thoughts on prison reform like i'm sure what the conversation comes up do you say you know if let's just say they hired you and you got a call from the White House saying, hey, you know, we have a handful of people that want to bring in to give us their perspective of how they changed their lives. Like you're one of the best stories in America. You change your life. What other feedback would you give for us to both minimize crime as well as not to create a good training ground? Would you have any other feedback on prison reform? Well, uh, I, I, what I just said kind of uh, encompasses the whole the whole thing. So that's my my deal. I do believe that you can't, you can't have, it doesn't help to hate on people. It doesn't help to, it, it, any kind of negativity is bad. Encouraging positive behavior is good. Uh, but also holding, having a carrot and a stick, you know, it's kind of worse than everything in life. So Thanks. you're, if, if I can, if I can help you, you got to help yourself. If you can help yourself, I can help you. But if you're not going to do your part, then what am I doing? You know? So I, I don't have like specifics. I, uh, you know, like one specific principle yeah. or, uh, it, this is just my experience. And, and I look around and I see the things that I disagree with. And, 
And I just go, to, to me, it's common sense. You just can't make it that easy. What a story. By the way, uh, uh, just out of curiosity, who, who do people say you look like? I have three people. I'm curious to know if I have any one of them right. Who do people say you look like? Mm, I'm looking at myself right now and I'm going, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> so, but you don't have one person. Look, by the way, like they look like me. They look like me. I don't, so I'm going to give you no, a couple names. I don't know. Well, first of all, you look all like right. a Hollywood star. I mean, if people see your pictures, you, you look like you belong in Hollywood. You don't look like you belong in, uh, you know, selling uh, bread. You look like a Hollywood star yourself. <laughs> but I, I see a couple of your younger pictures. You, you look like a Patrick Swayze meets Kurt Russell meets a Buff ah. Robin Williams. That's kind of how I see oh, it. Oh, wow. That's good. I, I've heard the Robin Williams thing growing, growing up when he was Mork and I was about uh, 14 or something. And ladies women would always say oh yeah you cute little robin williams you know and you i didn't really like that at the time <laughs> but i i'm happy with who i am so doesn't well matter. listen i i uh, uh, applaud you i have so much respect for you dave and i hope this message is shared with the right people where you could help inspire millions of people out there once again appreciate you for being a guest on valuetainment Thank you. I, I, I do appreciate your questions, your line of questions. I think they were really good questions. Uh, I've done a lot of interviews, and this has really been one of the, one of the best ones. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate you. What a comeback story, huh? Can you imagine, like, you go from doing jail time for 15 years, and then you have an epiphany moment, you come out, you come out with this bread called Dave's Killer Bread, and you go from selling 200 lo loaves a week to now they're selling nearly 10 million a week. Can you imagine that? Sells it for $275 million. Biggest takeaway, I'm curious, comment below. And if you enjoyed this interview, got another interview I think you'll enjoy with Freeway Rick Ross, the original Freeway Rick Ross. If you've never watched it, click over here to watch. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.